Father, when we uh, come to this time in our service, we're about to study and dive into your word. We, we, um, we come to this book that you've given us, and we, we want to understand the parts of it that we look at this morning. And more than just understand it, we want to hear from you uh, through these stories. And so would you speak to us now? We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, or if you've got a, an electronic version, you can awaken it, or if you uh, want to, you can look on the screen. This is the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. This is the Word of God. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. And so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Well, from that to this, there's a young uh, female pop singer. Her name is Christina Perry. And uh, she wrote a song that uh, became very, very popular in 2014, about the middle or end of 2014. It was called Human. Some of you might know it. Uh, the lyrics go like this, but I'm only human and I bleed when I fall down. I'm only human and I crash and I break down. I'm only human, just a little human, she sang. And um, I find those lyrics kind of interesting. I actually kind of liked the song, Once Upon a Time. The truth is, we have all kind of felt that and probably said that at one time or another. And in a way, it is the sad lament of the whole human race. I mean, why do I say the dumb and hurtful and sad things that I say? Well, I'm only human, right? Um, why do I let people down? My spouse, my kids, my grandkids, my coworkers, friends at church, this sermon you're about to hear. Uh, I'm only human, right? Why do I fail to care about all the injustice in the world that you know, pours through the TV and the media that we look at? Why do I fail to care? Why do I lack compassion when I see people in need or people suffering? Well, I'm, I'm only human. Why do I fail to live generously? Why do I prefer letting others serve me rather than me serving you or serving them? Well, I'm, I'm only human. 
You see, God calls Moses in the passage we just read to lead and to serve. And Moses says, well, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Not me, God. I am only human. Last week, we began uh, the story and we saw Moses flee to the wilderness of Midian. Now, God is going to call him back from that wilderness, back to the place from which he fled. I'm talking about Egypt, of course. And as many of you know, in this conversation we're about to look at, Moses has just a few objections. All kinds of ways of saying, really, not me, God. I'm only human. I cannot do this. So don't call me to do this. Don't send me to do this. God, this is not a good idea, right? And this morning, we are going to examine the call of Moses into service. And we're going to also look at some of Moses' excuses. And again, we are going to see the refrain of the grace of God, the goodness of God displayed in Moses' life. And uh, Moses is now, as I said, on the far side of the desert. He's uh, at Mount Horeb, which is, of course, Mount Sinai. And he's doing what he normally does. He's tending sheep. And uh, he's been doing this for a long time, 40 years, in fact. Think about that, 40 years he's been a shepherd. And we can safely assume he is not planning to leave the desert anytime soon. Remember, he ran from Egypt having killed a man there. And he figures he had, a, he had his shot at saving the Hebrew people, leading them out of slavery. And it didn't go so well, so that's over now. But Exodus tells us that Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep when suddenly an angel of the Lord appears to him in flames, flames from a burning bush. Now, up to this moment, we could assume, and I think it's a pretty good assumption, that Moses has never actually met God. Uh, he has not talked to God, and he's seen very few, if any, burning bushes, okay? So this is a dramatically defining moment for Moses. God is pursuing Moses. God is revealing himself to Moses. And we read that Moses thought, well, I'll go over and I'll see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Literally, Moses says this, he says, I will turn aside to see this great sight. That's literally what Moses, I will turn aside to see this great sight. And friends, God is actually right here at this moment being incredibly gracious to Moses. He's getting Moses' attention. He is not going to let Moses miss this moment. Uh, an ordinary bush becomes an extraordinary thing simply because God wants to meet Moses. Now, I suppose Moses could have theoretically watched for a bit and then moved right on. He could have been frightened. I uh, could have just kept moving the flocks, you know, to wherever it was he was going. But God makes sure that that doesn't happen. He meets Moses in the burning bush. And this, of course, is the beginning of Moses knowing God personally. This is the beginning of this thing of Moses' call into following God and serving God and being used by God. This is the beginning of Moses actually becoming a very, very different person than he's been. This is the beginning of his big life adventure right here, right now. And this is God's grace toward Moses on full display. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, Moses is a shepherd of someone else's sheep living in the backside of the Midian wilderness. 
He's already lost everything he had once upon a time. Privileged position in the Pharaoh's court, power and influence, the relationships that he had in Egypt, his wealth. And now after 40 years, a shepherd, God is going to introduce himself to Moses. And because God does this, I think I can say this, and I think conservatively it's true, the world was never the same. And of course, neither was Moses. Now, I don't want us to miss something that sort of is a minor point at this particular point in Moses' story, but it becomes a major, major deal in Moses' life later on. Moses sees this burning bush and he says, you know what, I will turn aside to see this great sight. That's Exodus 3.3. And this turning aside thing is the beginning of something for Moses that would later be an essential practice of his life. Moses turned aside to meet with God. And that moment of meeting with God was so significant. It was so completely life-changing and compelling that from this day on, Moses actually developed the practice of turning aside to meet with God, to talk with God, to hear from God, to seek God's wisdom and God's guidance in his life. What, what course should I take? What decision should I make here? This became a practice of Moses so that he could know God better. And if you were with us last week, you remember that this was what was missing in Moses' life before this point. Moses, you remember, had a plan, and he executed it. Ha <laughs> ha, get it? Some of you do. He never consulted with God. If he did, it's not mentioned. He, I don't think he consulted with God, and Moses' plan was a disaster. It led to murder. It led to his fleeing. Now, in Exodus chapter 33, so some years later in Moses' life, we are told that Moses had a practice of going to a tent that he pitched outside the camp, right? It was called the tent of meeting, and there Moses would meet with God. In fact, Exodus 33:11 tells us this, that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend, which is a remarkable statement. But that's what would happen in the tent of meeting, that place where Moses would go, where he would turn aside to meet with God. And the point I do not want us to miss is that this experience, this simple thing of turning aside to meet God, changes Moses forever. It's how he learned to surrender himself over and over and over again to God. He develops a habit of this, turning aside to meet God. And this, this is a dramatic difference from last week's story, last week's message, if you recall. It's the very thing that makes it possible for Moses to successfully orchestrate this thing we call today the Exodus, moving hundreds of thousands of stiff-necked and hard-hearted Jews out of the bondage of slavery into the place of freedom where God wanted them to be. His practice of reaching up is what we call it here. Connecting with God gave Moses what he needed. It gave him the guidance. It gave him the wisdom. It gave him the strength. It gave him the ability to, to, to achieve what is by any any definition at all, a monumental achievement, accomplishment. An accomplishment that Moses had literally no confidence whatsoever he could do. And I think you could argue that the main reason Moses succeeded in this task that God had given him wasn't, it wasn't Moses' leadership ability. 
It wasn't his intelligence. It was not his charisma, assuming he had that. It wasn't his skill set. It was simply this fact that he learned the importance of turning aside to meet God to manage the details of his life. Friends, I hope you see that almost nothing is more important than this. For Moses, for you, for me, Developing a daily, developing a weekly rhythm that connects us to God. The most important thing we do today or this week, it's life-changing. It's life-directing. You know, it's remarkable when you think about this. We have a book, the Bible, right? And uh, it's a book that does nothing but chronicle God's interaction with people. I mean, it's full of story after story, teaching after teaching, poem after poem, song after song, all rehearsing how God pursues us, how God saves us, how God provides for us, how God walks with us through difficulties and challenges of all kind. It's like we've got not a burning bush, we've got a burning forest right in our hands, right in our grasp. But, you know, the obvious question is, what do we do with it? Do we do much with it? Do we open it? Do we read it prayerfully, carefully? Do we meet God in the pages of this book called the Bible? And I, I hope you are. <laughs> I confess I need to. Boy, if and when I'm not, whoo. That's usually a, a key indicator that something is not right in my life. You know, I'm guiding my own life. I'm making my own decisions, and that's not generally a good thing. Turning aside to meet God, you know, is, is another reason. It's one of the key reasons why we meet here each week. I mean, that's what this is all about. Gathering together, remembering God's goodness, celebrating it in worship, honoring him. For Moses, the whole thing began when he turned aside. If he hadn't turned aside, story over. We're done. Moses just shepherds sheep and dies in the desert. But fortunately, Moses turned aside and he met God. And as we just read, God lets Moses kind of see his, see his heart. He reveals his plans, if you will, to Moses. It said, uh, God says to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. It's an interesting thing for God to say. I'm, I'm concerned about their suffering. And so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, he tells Moses. And then comes Moses' calling, which is kind of interesting to me because it's almost, if you read it, it read like an afterthought. Oh, yeah, and by the way, so now go, he says. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, of course, as you know, if you know anything about this story, Moses has a couple of concerns here. I mean, Pharaoh is the mightiest man on the planet at that point in time with the mightiest army uh, at his beck and call. And God is saying, Moses, go set my people free. Go take the Pharaoh's labor force and, you know, head into the wilderness with them. And here's where Moses' first objection surfaces. It's verse 11. Moses says to God, uh, God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? I'm only human, Lord. Don't do this. This is a bad idea. This is not a job for me. 
And I find this so ironic because you remember just some years earlier, about 40, Moses was ready to deliver the Hebrews. Uh, he figured he was the man for the job. He was young, he was strong, he was well-educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was certainly influential. He was as well-connected as you possibly could be. He had an in with the Pharaoh, his grandfather. And Moses is probably thinking, where were you then, God, when I had the plan? If you had come then, maybe we could have done this, but not now. Not at this stage of the game. No way. Now, Moses is just a, a broken-down shepherd in the desert. So I mean, he's 80 years old. He's a fugitive. He's a murderer. And so he says, who am I that I would appear before the Pharaoh? God, I'm a nobody. I can't do any good now. I'm only human, is what he's saying. And I'm assuming that Moses may have felt like a failure, probably also wrestled with some shame, some Guilt, he had failed to deliver the Hebrews once, and he had committed murder. There was that small fact. For 40 years, the only skills he's been honing had to do with sheep. You know, I don't know how that necessarily was equipping him to take on this task. And so he's saying, not me, Lord, not now. I'm only human. I cannot do this. But what's beautiful here is what God says next to Moses. This is incredible. Honestly, it's still what God says to you and me and millions of others. He says, Moses, I know who you are. I know what you've done. And it doesn't matter. Literally, he says, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth. That's what it says, literally. I'll be with your mouth. He already knows where Moses' arguments are going. We'll see this in a moment. But, you know, just, just go and I will be with your mouth. You see, Moses, your sin, your guilt, your limitations, your shortcomings are no longer the ultimate truth about you because I will be with you. I will love you. And I forgive you. That's the promise of grace, friends. I mean, that is the gospel right there. Moses, this 80-year-old murdering runaway fugitive is invited to live his life in the grace of God. I'll tell you, all of us here this morning, whether you realize it or not, that is our greatest need, to learn to live our lives in the grace of God. To remember that God loves you. You and I were not actually made to navigate life on our own. That's a mistake when we think we are. God wants us to remember that Jesus, his son, came and died on a cross to pay for our sin. That's Jesus' gift to us. And he wants us to know that new life is available to us simply by following Jesus. We can even become different people just because of Jesus. In fact, that's what a disciple is. It's somebody always learning, somebody always being transformed into hopefully greater and greater likeness of Jesus. Now, you see, all of this is a gift. It's something that God gifted to Moses. It's something that still today he offers to us as a gift. In fact, the apostle John said it quite succinctly. He says, to all who received him, he's talking about Jesus, to all received him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of of God. What a remarkable fact that is. 
And I would just say to you, if you haven't done that, you need to, like these folks up here a little earlier. You see, going to church doesn't make you anything other than a weirdo. But it doesn't make you anything. I mean, we're talking about personal commitments here. We're talking about personal priorities here. And if you haven't made Jesus your personal priority, maybe you haven't understand that he is the Savior. He is the world's greatest teacher. He is the embodiment of truth. He wants to even be your friend, my friend, and he is also master. That's all mixed up in this as well. And the way you receive him is you just put your faith in him. And if you haven't done that, friend, you need to. Don't leave here this morning without receiving that gift, without grasping that gift. That would be a terrible mistake. And this is not a hard thing to do. I mean, a simple prayer like, God, I confess my sin and I turn from it and I ask you to come into my life and forgive me as a, as a gift of grace. God, I need you to be my savior. I need you to be my redeemer. I need you to be my actual practical leader day in, day out. And I'll tell you, if you do that, <laughs> then you need to tell somebody, <laughs> tell me, tell a friend, tell somebody you can't, because that's something to celebrate. Kind of what we just did moments ago. That is to be celebrated. That is a turning point, a major moment in your life when you make that decision. You know, most of us here this morning, we already follow Jesus. We made that decision sometime long ago, or we grew up believing that. But the truth be told, for some of us, we may be following Jesus, but at a far, far distance, <laughs> you know, not very closely. That's another way of saying we haven't really been living in grace. We haven't been making Jesus a practical priority. We haven't been developing rhythms in our life like turning aside to meet with him. And so, I don't know, maybe you live with some guilt and shame around that. And I would just say to you, you too need to hear what Jesus says. And what Jesus says is, I, I know who you are. I know what you've done or what you're not doing. My death on the cross makes all of that irrelevant. Your sin, your guilt, your limitations, your shortcomings, these things are not the ultimate truth about you. And when you let that thing sink, sink in, that truth sink in, you see, that reorients the heart. When you put your faith in Jesus, you have been given his righteousness, his understanding, the Bible tells us. We have been shown grace. And so the truth about you is, yes, you are only human. That's who we are. We are only human, but we are humans with God in us, God's grace. And that makes us somebody new. Uh, just like Moses, just like it did Moses, you know, uh, Moses developed this practice of turning aside, this practice of listening to God, this practice of talking to God and connecting with God. And so God shows Moses grace, meets him in the bush. Moses is saying, I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm, I'm only human. You've got the wrong guy. And God says, none of that matters, Moses. Live in my grace. I will be with you. And so what do you think Moses does next? That'd be great if that story right there, okay, okay, let's go do this, but that's not what happens. Moses says, well, you know, it's great that you're going with me, God, but who are you? That's his next question. Who are you? Uh, 
Verse 13, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, well, what is his name, right? Then what shall I tell them, Moses asks. And Moses here uh, isn't exactly looking for just a, a label of identification. He wants to know about God's character. That's really the question he's asking. He wants to know what are the qualities of God? What are God's intention? He's saying, will you uh, uh, give us access to you, God? Will you be responsive when we talk to you? Will you use your power on our behalf? Will you answer our prayers? Moses is asking, what kind of God are you? And he wants to know God's Name. You see, names in Moses' day often meant something, and they usually said something about the person. And so God's answer back to Moses is really quite interesting. He says, I am who I am. That's his answer. God pronounces his great name, Yahweh in Hebrew, Jehovah in English. I am who I am. And Bible scholars have spent lifetimes exploring the mystery of this name, the grandeur of this name. At least part of what it means is actually kind of revealed to us in what God goes on to say in the next verses. Uh, God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob appeared to me and said, I have watched over you. And I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land a land flowing with milk and honey. That is who I am, is what he's saying. I am the God who cares for my people. I am the God who hears their cries. I am the God, Moses, who saved you as a baby. I am the God who watched you flee into the desert. I am the God who speaks in a burning bush. Sometimes I speak in a still, small voice. I am the God who will someday be in a manger, who will hang on a cross. So rest at ease, Moses. I am who I am. Yahweh, Jehovah, and I will not change. And this becomes a defining moment in God's dealing with the whole human race, understand. God says to Moses and to all of us, I want you to know me. I, I have come down to be known. I want you to know my character. I want you to know my name. And that's why at various times, God reveals himself to us using various forms of his names. This actually happens throughout, in particular, the Old Testament. Because God wants us to know something about him. Uh, the name Jehovah Jireh is a name that uh, means God will provide. God gave that name to Abraham. Abraham needed an heir. He didn't have an heir. And so God revealed himself to Abraham as Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And he did. Jehovah Nisi, my uh, God is my banner. banner. This is a name that God gave to Moses when they fought the Amalekites. And they needed a victory really bad. They, they were about to be wiped out. But but God becomes the banner under which they march and they experience victory. Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom. God tells Gideon, there's no peace, no peace in the land whatsoever. People are oppressing God's people. God reveals himself to Gideon and says, I am Jehovah Shalom, the God of peace. I will bring peace, Gideon, he tells him. Jehovah Shema, God is there. It's in Ezekiel's vision of heaven. Jehovah Tzidkenu, the idea of God is our righteousness. All of these names tell us something about God. And God's root name is Jehovah. It's Yahweh. 
I am who I am. I am self-existent. I am absolute. I am unchanging. And so Moses first says, who am I, Lord, that I should lead your people? And God invites Moses to live in grace. And then Moses says, well, who are you, Lord? And, and God invites him to grow in the knowledge of him. And now we come back to another objection that Moses has. Can I read some more scripture? It's good. That's the right answer in church. So chapter 4, this is what we read. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, the Lord did not appear to you? I mean, he, you know, it's a legitimate objection, maybe. But this is God's answer. It says, then the Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground and it became a, a snake and he ran from it. You just got a picture of that. That's hilarious, actually. So he, he throws it on the ground, it becomes a snake. He runs from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. That's always, by the way, a bad way to pick up a snake. Just saying, but that's what God tells him to do. It's trust. You know, we're building trust here. That's what God is up to. Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reaches out and took hold of the snake and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Well, then the Lord said, put your hand inside your, inside your cloak. And so Moses put his hand into his cloak. And when he took it back out, it was leprous like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. And so Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And then the Lord said, if they do not believe you or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water you take from the Nile will become blood. Blood on the ground. And I kind of love what we see unfolding here. It's actually kind of a pattern in Scripture. We actually see it elsewhere. God tells Moses, just take a few simple things there, Moses. Take your staff, that thing that you, you know, have been working with for 40 years, working with the sheep. Take your hand, that thing you always have, right? Take some water from the Nile, just ordinary, common, simple things, and give them to me. And I will do some amazing things with them. You just give them to me. Trust me. You don't even have to trust me perfectly. Just trust me enough to give me what's in your hand. This is kind of what we see Jesus doing many, many, many years later. Jesus is teaching a large crowd of people. They're out in a kind of a wilderness area, a desert area. It's late in the day, and these people are hungry. They're tired. And uh, Jesus says, we need to feed these people. Jesus' disciples say, yeah, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, no, you, you feed them. And uh, they said, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough bread. We don't have enough of anything to do that. And he says, well, what do you have in your hand? Well, we've got a couple fish. We've got a couple uh, loaves of bread. And they gave them to Jesus and they fed thousands and thousands of people. It's just kind of what God does when we give him what we have in our hands. I mean, when we give God our homes, when we give God our cars, when we give God our time, when we give God our resources, our talents, our jobs, our money, our children, our spiritual gifts, our relationships, well, you know, he will use them to do some wonderful things. It's that surrender thing that we talked about last week. Much of being a disciple is about learning to surrender over and over and over again. God asks, what's that in your hand? And giving things to God, friends, is always about trust. It was for Moses. 
And so now you think, okay, Moses has got it. He's ready to go. Are you still with me? You still awake? Okay, ready to go. And yeah, here we go. He's ready to sign on, but not so much. He's a little bit like you and me. He's got another objection, a fourth one. Moses says to the Lord, oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord, now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. God says, Moses, I make mouths. I am perfectly capable of using yours, getting it to move exactly the way it should, filling it with amazing words. I can give you abilities that far exceed any natural talents you may have or you may think you lack. And it's just an Old Testament example of what God did then. He still does it today. He gives spiritual gifts to people, to men, to women, young people, old people. These are gifts given by the Holy Spirit of God to us so that we can be used and be useful. Uh, too many people sit in churches and they say, Lord, I just don't see anything to do. I see people up there singing, playing instruments. I don't do that. I see this guy talking a long, 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 long time. I don't do that. And I would just say two things to you uh, kind of quickly. Number one, God gifts all of us, every single one of us, by his spirit and through this, some of the natural talents and abilities we have. He does that so that our lives can be used meaningfully to impact the lives of others. Not so we'll just sit on our butts, on our hands, and do nothing. And if you're a little unclear about that, I would say to you what Tim said earlier, go to starting point. Because in the process of starting point, we talk about spiritual gifts and how God would use you and opportunities to serve and things of that nature. For goodness gracious, you don't want to miss that opportunity. Because it's, it's part of what makes being a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, fun. To, uh, the second thing I would just say, it's really a question, and that would be this. Can you pray? Can you answer a phone in the office? Can you organize stuff? Can you do graphic design? Can you do drywall repair? Can you use a computer? Can you participate in a small group? Can you make or deliver meals? Can you run sound? Can you love on children? Can you usher? It's called ushing. Can you work with uh, high school or middle school students? Can you welcome and greet people? You get the point. There are all kinds of things that churches need to do and need to have done. But you have to trust God with what you already have in your hand. You have to be willing. Moses thought he was a poor speaker. I get such a kick out of this. He thought he couldn't be used, especially in that way, right? But he trusts God, and eventually God actually gifts him. And the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, verse 22, it says this about Moses. It says, he was powerful in speech and action. In fact, you ought to read his farewell address in the latter chapters of the book of Deuteronomy. Unbelievable. Talk about an inspiring, gifted, uh, passionate plea to the people of God, an incredible message that Moses delivered. And it has challenged people actually for thousands of years when you read and look at it. This is the guy who said, oh Lord, I have never been eloquent. The point is that whatever your gifts are, hospitality, leadership, service, mercy, shepherding, administration, whatever they are, give them to God. Let him use them. Don't sit on them and miss out on the opportunity to impact the lives of others and to have God impact you. 
So Moses objects, I'm only human. God says, don't worry about it. I'm going to gift you. I'm going to operate your mouth, God tells him. Now, you would think that would be enough. But you're seeing a pattern here, right? Moses has experienced grace. Moses uh, has been invited to know God by name. He can trust God to work with what's already in his hand. Uh, he finds out that God is going to gift him, give him exactly what he needs to pull off this task. And so this is what the mighty Moses says. Oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. <laughs> oh, that's just great. I love it. That helps me relate to Moses. It says, then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. God's getting a little tired of this. Round and round and round we go. And so he says, well, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and his heart will be glad when he sees you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you. It will be uh, as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him, God says. Do you see grace there? Man. God gives Moses his brother Aaron. He tells Moses he doesn't have to carry the burden of this whole project himself. Not at all. He can trust in God, and I'm going to let Aaron come alongside and help you. You can do it with your brother. More and more and more and more grace in this story. And so God lets Moses minister in the context of a community of people. God even tells Moses, Aaron is already on his way to meet you. God is already up to something. He's been planning something. He's got Mo or Aaron already in motion on his way to, to Moses. Amen. Talk about grace. And God shows us this same grace. He's not any different today than he was then. And, you know, we get to represent him together as a team. That's really what we were doing yesterday. I mean, you know, a week ago, we, we actually contemplated canceling the serve day because we just didn't know if we were going to have enough people. Then we heard the weather. We thought, oh, man, this is not going to be good. We're not going to be able to pull this off. But God put a team together. We get to do what we do, represent him to others as a team, as a church spiritual brothers and sisters, so to speak. We get to usher and disciple children and serve the community together, be in small groups together, show hospitality together, serve students together, worship and sing together. We get to do what we do together. That makes it so much more interesting and frankly, so much easier and so much more impactful. Well, let me summarize. God calls Moses Moses says, God, I'm only human. And then he has all these objections, right? To which God responds, Moses, live in my grace. Grow in your knowledge of me. Give me what you've got in your hand and I will multiply it and make it useful. I will gift you to serve. I want you also to serve in a community with others. All this just because Moses decided to turn aside and meet with God. And I would just conclude with this, friends. I think God is still looking for people today who will do just that, who will consistently prioritize the need to turn aside and listen and talk and trust and pray and follow. I think 
fundamentally, that's what God wants from us. And as we do that very imperfectly, what do we discover? (laughs) Grace, incredible grace. Well, that's all I got. I don't have a good conclusion, so you just have to deal with that. Let's, uh, let's, (laughs) wow. (laughs) That's kind of like being on a talk show and you say, yeah, I'm from New York and you happen to be in New York and everybody goes, yeah, New York. (laughs) That's an easy one. Um, Pray with me. God, we are so grateful that you have called us like you called Moses. And we are painfully aware that we are only human. And that in so many ways we are inadequate and we are incompetent. Worse, we are sinners. We miss the mark completely. But you are a God who has come down to be with your people. And you know us and you invite us to live in your grace. You invite us to know you better. You use us. You give us resources to honor you. And you gift us and you let us serve together. Thank you, Father, for this time where we get to turn aside and listen and hear from you. And we do that right now in the name of Jesus. Amen.